Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human. We're building our future technological infrastructure based on some very old and disparaging notions about human beings and their place in the natural order. Technologists at the very heart of our biggest tech firms and most elite engineering schools see human beings as the problem and technology as the solution. When they're not developing interfaces to control us, they're building intelligences to replace us. Along the way, the networks and technologies we use to connect to one another are turned toward isolating and atomizing us, or even used to turn us against one another. It's time we reassert the human agenda, and we must do so together, not as the individual players we've been led to imagine ourselves to be, but as the team we actually are, Team Human. Playing for and against Team Human today, the participants of a panel at IBM Watson, New York. I worry that people ascribe notions of intelligence or cognition or you know free will to, to these computing systems which are designed to help people solve problems. I, I very much worry that people forget what they are. We'll be looking at how artificial intelligence is being taught to think about or at least talk about itself. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm definitely on Team Human. I just watched the VMAs, and I got so pissed off. There was this woman, I don't know anybody's name on these things, but there was a woman who used to be a songwriter for other people, this blonde woman, and now she became a songwriter for herself. So the last year or so has been about her. It's kind of like this Bonnie Raitt sort of thing, where this this wonderful person that the whole industry loves is now uh, front and center doing her own music. And she's like, 30 seconds into her song, and this Chiron comes up on the screen saying, to see the complete song, go to like the VMA Awards online so they could cut to commercial and come back and play Taylor Swift's video. So what was this? This was a live television event deciding to shut down a live performance in order not just to go to commercial, but in order to have time to play a video. And it's 
this bizarre video. It was um, Taylor Swift's song, Look What You Made Me Do, which turns out it was co-written by the guys who did um, I'm Too Sexy For Myself. And it's like the same song, except it's Taylor Swift doing it about being dissed on TV or something else. So here we are watching on live TV about the backstage machinations of pop stars fighting because she's mad at Kanye and then they're all mad at at uh, Katy Perry, like this whole thing going on. And it's at the direct expense of a real songwriter singing a real song live on television to the world. It was bizarre. The thing became its opposite. You know, and that's uh, to a large extent what this uh, this show is about today. I did a panel, a really bizarre panel, at IBM Watson. A friend of ours and great supporter of, of the show, Luke Robert Mason from the UK, arranged this panel with me and uh, Martine Rothblatt and Steve Fuller and Dan O'Hara and Michael Karasik, who, unlike the rest of us, is an actual uh, an engineer and developer at, at Watson, a team leader there. And we're having this kind of uh, far-flung talk about what does it mean? You know, what is Watson and how does it work and how are we talking about it? And is this thing ethical? And as part of that, we all got to see Watson. We got to see Watson in action. And what Watson in action is, is this whole building in Greenwich Village that IBM bought and turned into this kind of artificial intelligence showroom. You know, you go through these experiences. It's like that, you know, when you watch one of those science fiction TV shows on Netflix now and they have these kind of holographic women talking at you wearing lab coats and you move across the room to this display and that display. It was like that. It was like almost like a science fiction parody of itself. And they have this, all these projections of different professionals who could use it. And you like touch one, you touch the doctor. And then the doctor will talk to you about how he used IBM Watson to solve some terrible disease. Or you touch an insurance person and they say how they used IBM Watson to, you know, figure out better actuarial results for their uh, insurance uh, policies. And it's really a, a sales location that it's like one of those old Disney exhibits, those things that you move through, some kind of a ride. And it ends in this special vault room where you go and you see this thing behind Lucite with kind of glowing lights. And that's supposed to be Watson, right? That's him in there. And he's glowing. And and then they play movies where they show how Watson figured out a disease that a little kid had that the doctors couldn't figure out. And you see this picture of this little kid who's got these bright red eyes. And apparently the doctors didn't notice that the kid had the bright red eyes. But Watson noticed that the kid had bright red eyes. And then figured, looked in its database and found, oh, look at these diseases that kids with bright red eyes might have and figured out what the kid had. So basically, if you're a really bad doctor and you don't look at the kid's eyes, then Watson would be great. And I only bring it up as a bad example because this is the example they're using to sell the damn thing. So we end up then having this 
conversation, this panel between a couple of academics and one, uh, uh, this uh, woman, Martine Rothblatt, who's a big uh, uh, artificial intelligence advocate. And her main point is that if we start uh, growing these artificial intelligences, we have to think about how to treat them ethically because they're basically living things. You can't just turn one off once you've turned it on. So she's making that whole argument. But the thing that really bothered me about this whole conversation is they always say when Watson comes up with an answer, they say, well, Watson is 75 percent sure or Watson has 50 percent certainty on this answer as if Watson is thinking. Watson thinks that this is the right answer. I object to using these kinds of verbs because Watson is not thinking. Watson is not sure. Watson may not be accurate. There might be a 25% chance that Watson is wrong, but Watson doesn't know Watson is wrong. Watson is not considering the validity of Watson's responses. So why must we speak about Watson with these active verbs as if Watson is actually doing something, thinking something, aware of something? Well, because it's easier to talk about it that way. It's easier to say, Watson thinks this or Watson thinks that. But machines don't think like people. And people don't think like machines. To use this structure in talking about how Watson does things, the people at IBM are intentionally creating a misunderstanding, a misperception of what's actually going on. For IBM, it's to their advantage for us to think that machines really think that Watson is some kind of a person and that people are basically just artificial intelligences too. But the mind, the human mind, is not computational. This is what none of the artificial intelligence people want to tell you. Talk to a neurologist and you'll find this out. Talk to a neuroscientist and they're the ones who will tell you, uh, no, we don't really quite know how the mind works yet. It's definitely not computational. It's nonlinear. The different parts of the mind, when you try to think about something, Different parts of the mind activate and project the thought almost into a third space. It's not like retrieving a piece of data on a Google hard drive. And that's not even getting into awareness. Watson cannot feel its certainty. It's not even aware of itself, much less the answers that it's giving. So under the guise of admitting that Watson isn't really certain, Watson's only 91% certain of this answer, as if they're admitting Watson's weak, what they're actually trying to do is sell Watson as if it's achieved the holy grail, as if Watson actually feels. That's what they're slipping in there. It's false modesty. It's like, oh, Watson's only 91% sure, but... Meanwhile, Watson's thinking, Watson's aware, Watson's alive. <laughs> they're burying the lead because they're trying to slip that in as if they've actually achieved the holy grail of AI, whereas Watson is really just a glorified search engine. It's all just Google. Alexa, play Rolling Stones. 
Oh, sorry if I just turned on your Alexa by doing that. She doesn't know who I am. So take a listen. Take a listen to this this debate, if you will, between people who understand how the human mind works and people who understand how to sell an artificial one. So here is a panel conducted at IBM Watson in New York on August 11th, 2015, between me, Martine Rothblatt, Steve Fuller, Dan O'Hara, and Michael Karasik of Watson. If you want to see the video of this, you can join Team Human as a Patreon subscriber. That will also get you access to the Team Human Slack channel and other goodies. But for now, have a listen to this strange debate on how to think and talk about supposedly intelligent machines. Let's start. Let's start at the at the beginning, uh, Michael. I, I'm still trying to understand what is Watson, and maybe it's my hubris as a human, but my natural tendency is to keep trying to put Watson in a very particular box. In other words, as a very interactive form of Google, you know, or Google that can talk back and refine. Uh, so I want to know. Really, what do you guys mean by a cognitive machine? What do you mean when you say Watson reads books or Watson has confidence? Is this drama to help us understand processes that are going on? Or does Watson read books? Does Watson have confidence? You know, what is, what is going on in there besides the database? Five minutes, huh? Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, OK, so uh, short story. I guess um, IBM, IBM Research has been working in uh, AI technologies for a very long time, probably 40 or 50 years. So when people talk about, uh, you know, Watson playing Jeopardy in 2011 uh, as sort of new work, I laugh. Um, we had a team in IBM Research working on, uh, you know, an open problem in AI called uh, Deep Question and Answer, and the, and the point was, can you build a system that can answer uh, open domain questions? Ask a question, get an answer, have the answer be useful. We built a system that answered a particular type of question we call a factoid-based question, uh, trained the system by reading Wikipedia and by reading its, you know, ingesting uh, enormous numbers of documents, uh, doing some natural language processing, uh, training the system to understand the kinds of questions in the case of Jeopardy that are asked and being able to uh, answer one, two, three forward questions in a very highly redundant corpus. So that's where we started. The confidence point is that you know, statistical machine learning or deep neural network based learning, none of them are precise. So the, uh, the genius of what the, uh, the team did that built it was to do a, a pretty good job um, with um, you know, hundreds of different scoring functions and algorithmics to combine the scoring functions to produce a ranked set of answers. And along with that um, aggregation step is a sense of how good each answer is. That's where the confidence comes from. Fast forward a couple of years, what we've been doing 
is decomposing the original Watson system and augmenting it with many other uh, engines that um, we call cognitive, and I'll define that in a moment, to build a platform. So if you fast forward to where we are now, we're building a set of you know, cloud-delivered services, uh, which do interesting things, everything from answer questions to uh, analyze personality of a writer by um, analyzing their uh, words, not OCR, but literally the text that they, uh, they produce. And the idea is to build a system that derive, derives insight from signals, you know, extracting the, the signal from the noise, if you like. Um, did I get all your questions? Yes and no. I mean, the core question is, do you consider using the, the phrase, Watson has confidence, problematic, as compared to saying, Watson you know, reports uh, the probability of correctness? That's fine. But I'm, do you see, but, but... I'm not hung up on the word confidence, if that's fine. I'm not saying, no, I'm hung up on the word has. <laughs> oh, you're hung up on the word has. Watson has confidence is very different than Watson can report the probability of, of uh, an answer's correctness. I'm not hung up on the word has either. But all right, that's good to know because the the it seems that that the Watson team has kind of meticulously worked to present you know Watson in in the shape of a character or yeah. that has that certainly you know per, not just anthropomorphized but personified to the extent where maybe people think, oh, this is going to be a less, a less threatening partner in your exploration because now you've got this thing that has confidence. But there's sort of a choice there that's made. And there's a black box because it's all proprietary. So a lot of us in the outside regular little world think, oh, Watson has confidence. But Watson doesn't have confidence, right? Yeah, so Watson is a computer program with a lot of algorithms that a number of us know about or don't know about. And at the end of the day, Watson does a lot of processing and training in particular domains. And uh, then, depending on the algorithm you use, you end up with a probability, confidence is a fine word to use, of the, uh, the answer being uh, correct. But we talk about internally standard notions of precision and recall. There's no magic. Right. And there's no confidence, as it were. In other words, there's not a being with confidence. There's, just like a, a Google result might say, you know, well, this is, uh, we, you know, our system predicts that this is 46% relevant to your search. Watson, the Watson algorithms have predicted that this is like getting 99% certain. 99 would be good. Yeah, for example. <laughs> but right, okay. Okay, because there's, I mean, I think a lot of what our conversation is going to be about is public perception of of AI and where this is going and trying to kind of bring more rigor to the way we think about this stuff. If you've got a public who thinks that Watson has confidence, you can see where they get real chappy real fast. One of the things that's been interesting to me is when you, when you build a system that demonstrates traits that we associate with intelligence, learning, having confidence, whatever we want to call it. Uh, you're right, people do anthropomorphize it a little bit. And uh, you know our view on what Watson is used for is to help people. You know we don't, um, you know, expect to see little Watsons all all over the place uh, doing what people do now. But we like to look for use cases that you know amplify someone's intelligence, gives them ability to scale, helps. So you know it's uh, we don't say cuddly, um, 
Although one of the uh, one of the companies been working with has a really cool little uh, dinosaur available in three colors, powered by Watson for kids. But um, it's in some sense gratifying to to see that the system has been uh, sort of treated and accepted the way it has. Okay, and we're going to come back to a lot of this. So, Martine, I'm really interested to know what you mean. What you, what, you know, what, what you mean by mind clones and cyber consciousness and what informs, what kind of from the real world informs these kind of predictions or visions of where things are going. In other words, it's not, you know, Philip K. Dick, we know what informed those visions of where things were going. It wasn't, but it, and it wasn't necessarily science that was going on or technology. It was, you know, medications. I'm, I'm interested because you are, a, you know, the CEO of, of various technology companies and a, a technology researcher. How, what sort of, what out there has informed, if you can explain these, sort of these, these ideas and then what, you know, what, what you brought to bear to kind of assemble them? Sure. So the, the book Virtually Human is basically a book of uh, ethical explorations and I'm an ethicist and not a computer scientist. I take it the, as the premise for the book, what is pretty much a thought experiment that suppose there is software that one or more people consider to be humanly conscious, meaning they believe that software has the kind of interior feelings, thoughts, thinking, fears, etc., that another person would have. And if one or more people feel that way about some software, what sort of uh, ethical rights and obligations apply to other flesh people with respect to that software and apply to that software itself? So if that uh, software is uh, deemed by one or more people to be identical in their core consciousness to that of another human they know, uh, the best friend themselves, their mother, what have you. That's what I call in the book a mind clone, because the idea is that one or more people feel, wow, this software is me just outside of my body, or it's my mother, but outside of my body, my friend, but outside of my body. So what kind of ethical rights and obligations apply to other people treating that software? What kind of rights and obligations apply to that software itself? And uh, that's, that's what the Virtually Human book um, spends its uh, 350 pages or so exploring. And these, the cyber consciousness, or the mind clones, are you thinking of them as conscious or as, uh, as good as conscious as far as the interactor? Well, as mentioned, it's, there's a very broad continuum of possibilities because, as I know, it depends on what one or more people feel. So one person's conscious cat is, an, is, a, is another person's empty box in a, in a soft, furry, uh, feline sort of shape. So what I point out in the book is that you know, there's, a, there's an infinity of different perspectives that one would have with regard to whether or not any particular software is conscious or is a mind clone. And I suggest some different um, methods for developing a larger social consensus as to whether or not this really is cyber consciousness or just a fancy puppet um, or an interactive journal or what have you. 
And I point out that, you know, probably until the end of time, there will be debates and arguments over whether or not um, what one person thinks is cyber consciousness is in fact cyber consciousness. Just like, um, you know, after probably 10,000 years of humans and dogs hanging out together, there is still to this day a huge diversity of points of view. Somebody throws a dog out, out the car window on the freeway, um, and uh, somebody hunts, you know, Cecil the lion in, uh, in uh, Zim Zimbabwe, and um, millions of other people are just horrified. And sometimes the consensus reaches to the level that it's a felony crime in, in you know, most states in the United States. And it's, and it's really fun as, a, as an ethicist because the, the subject of the ethical discussion is itself as fluid as honey. I know it feels as if these kinds of conversations are new. And you're alluding to the fact that maybe, especially with regard to things other than technology, they're old conversations. Old, old, old. I'm wondering, and this is where, where Dan can really come in handy. I mean, are, how old are these conversations? Is, are we in a unique conversation now, or is this something you've seen before? I think we've seen it repeatedly over, and there's a limit to documented history. Um, we can only know as far as human documentation, or perhaps even archeology span can go back and tell us, but, um, maybe giving you concrete examples yeah. of ones that are directly yeah. proximal. I like the way, Martin, you're emphasizing the degree to which a society might project a view of consciousness onto something. Um, if we take the most recent point in time when we probably had something a little bit like the debate we have now about AI where there is great trepidation on one hand but also massive uh, transcendental optimism about something on the other. It was about 20 years ago. It was in about 1994 when people were first starting to hear of this internet thing and not a lot of people really thought it would catch on. And on the other hand, there were people who were proselytizers for a vision of cyberspace. The virtual was going to be a place into which we could penetrate another realm but now, I mean, that's, that's an analogous situation. But now when we're talking about uh, what Michael describes, a machine that does something that is perhaps like thinking, if we subtract all the metaphors such as reading and understanding and learning, yeah, we've had lots of those. Um, my favorite is um, a guy called uh, Ramon Lull or Raymond Lully, uh, a 13th century mystical philosopher who lived on Mallorca. And uh, the Argentinian writer Borges writes about him, interestingly. And he had a thing uh, which he called a thinking machine. And it was um, basically a, a machine made out of a series of concentric circles with terms written around the side things like wisdom and truth and eternity, and all of these crossed cables in the middle. And what you could do would, would be you could rotate any of the disks so that the terms would correspond and deliver you a message. 
And he had a whole load of disciples who followed this thing called the Ars Magna using these machines. Now, when Borges analyzes these machines, he points out that Lull and Lull's disciples knew that the machine didn't think. It didn't work. They knew it was broken. But that really didn't bother them. Because what they did was they said, that's fine. It's fine that we've got the machine that doesn't work. We'll just combine it with another, and another, and another, and another. And by this recurrent process, this sequential process of comparing one against the other, you would eventually rectify the errors of the first and second and third. And what you'd end up with would be, of course, um, like not thinking, not thinking in that sense. What you would end up with, because he was a mystical philosopher, would be uh, the word of God. Now, I, when we were in the immersion center earlier, and I was looking at Watson, I was thinking that this recurrent neural network type of process is very similar to what Ramon Lull's disciples thought they were doing back in the 13th century. And they ascribed to it a kind of consciousness. Does that kind of, yeah. just to begin? Yeah, I mean, when I, you talk I, about it like that, it's what, it's what my, uh, my ancestors thought they were doing when they were uh, uh, writing and rewriting Torah, and, and yes. again and again and again, that it was an iterative loop through which uh, something extra happens. Um, that's, that's a really good example because it actually brings us to the ethical question, the ethical obligations that Martin was bringing up a little bit earlier, which is uh, what technologies in history have we granted absolute autonomy and executive power? Have we ever done that before? I mean, we're, we're talking at the moment about uh, the possibility of strong AI or of autonomous weapons systems uh, that can make their own decisions independent of human agency. Has that ever happened before with any piece of technology? And Well, yes, of course it has. I mean, so long as you take a, a broad definition of technology that isn't just to do with tools and gadgets, but say that technology is an ology like any other, like biology, archaeology, it's the logic of the study of how to do things, the logic of techne, then, yeah, I mean, books are technologies. And we have granted absolute autonomy, absolute executive power, and absolute transcendence to the Torah, the Bible, the Quran, with um, varying degrees of complicated uh, real-world effects. Left out the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> You're on Team Human. We're listening to a debate that occurred at IBM Watson in New York on August 11th, 2015. The participants are me, Martine Rothblatt, Steve Fuller, Dan O'Hara, and Michael Karasek. And if you can hear in the background, Watson himself.
feels like a lot of times we go into this conversation about AI and then we end up talking about tools that are really good. We end up talking about sort of some kind of intelligence augmentation thing and everybody backs away from Chappie until we're back in the movies and then we're thinking, oh my God, mommy, mommy. You know, it <laughs> ran around looking for its mother. It's now, oh, that poor thing. Um, how do we bring rigor to this discussion? How do we develop an informed, rigorous discourse Okay. about this, and where right. is that happening? Okay, well look, what I'm going to do in the, in the brief period is just to sort of lay out some benchmarks here. First of all, I think it's, it's fair to say that this whole business of, try, of trying to create artificial intelligence that potentially can surpass whatever human beings can do is actually uh, something that I think is quite recognizable from the philosophical tradition. So in other words, there's nothing weird about this. Uh, in fact, most of, our, uh, most of our philosophical theories, especially in the modern period, about what it means to do science, how do you get at the truth, even our notions of ethics, whether we're talking about Kant or Bentham, actually presupposes agents that are much more powerful cognitively than ordinary human agents are. And in fact, part of what we call postmodernism is a retreat from that. Right? Postmodernism is largely a retreat from that, saying, look, human beings aren't these super utilitarians. They aren't these, you know, you know I infinitely principled creatures. They aren't, these prin they aren't these creatures who can just amass all possible evidence and then come up with the optimal solution to a problem. Right? Uh, and that's what postmodernism basically has been about. It's been about kind of scaling down what it is that human beings should expect as reasonable. Okay? Um, and, and maybe there, there may be biological constraints with regard to human beings, homo sapiens, that kind of in inevitably makes sense of that idea. But nevertheless, it seems to me that, you know, insofar as we do identify with the philosophical tradition and about, you know, ideals of rationality and, and optimal goodness and all the rest of it, there is a sense in which artificial intelligence actually does respond to that, okay? And I think that always needs to be kind of seen very much. It is not a strange or weird thing, okay? Um, and I think, it, you know, so, so that's the first point to make. I do think, however, that as we uh, get into a position of improving artificial intelligence and all the rest of it, and I'm quite comfortable with the idea that we are going to do this, and that, uh, that then we're going to have some interesting kind of Turing test style problems. Because basically what we're talking about here is using a kind of sophisticated version of the Turing test as a kind of citizenship criterion. Okay? So in other words, you're trying to figure out, okay, is this being that has been artificially constructed that can do all these wonderful, amazing things that we think is very valuable in our society and so forth, are they sufficiently what? The X question. In order to count them as one of us. Right? To give them citizenship rights. Now, the interesting thing about this... Like corporations or something. Well, yeah. well, no, but, no, no, but, 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 the, but the interesting point about this, of course, is if you look at, the, if you look at human history uh, and, and the various struggles that members of Homo sapiens have had to fought in order to get citizenship, okay, uh, you know, whether we're talking about women or ethnic minorities or whatever, right, I mean, part of what has had to go on in that process is that one has had to think about the notion of belonging and citizenship in a somewhat more abstract way so that in a sense you don't start off at the get-go being prejudiced because the thing isn't kind of the way you expect somebody to be in their physical composition. Um, and, and I think it's taken a long time for that to actually be overcome uh, and in fact it's still a struggle today 
okay, in terms of the way in which we interpret, you know, differently bodied human beings, even just talking about women, you know, in the biological sense, or even talking about ethnic minorities, right? I mean, the, you know, there's a sense in which in order to ascribe a level of equality where all of these beings can be part of a common citizenship, common society, right, has been an enormous struggle within Homo sapiens per se, okay? So we should expect that it will be a tricky issue, right? And that, and that the fact that we're, you know, we might end up in these kinds of, you know, if you've seen Blade Runner, right, these scenarios where you have actually a very sophisticated notion of the Turing test going on in Blade Runner, which actually kind of gets the interrogator going into the psychoanalysis of your relationship to your mother and things like that as a way of trying to figure out whether these beings are really human, etc. Right? I mean, we should expect something like that to happen, but that itself is not a problem, right? Any greater problem than the problems we've been facing in the past, okay? So I don't see this as a kind of in-principle problem. I just think it's part of the general problem of increasing enfranchisement. And this is why I actually like, I mean, one of the things that's very good about the Mind Clones book, uh, Martine's book, is that it gets into some of the legal stuff, right? And the criteria issues about what are you looking for, how do you judge these things, because that's what it's going to boil down to. It's going to be boiled down to judgment calls that can, uh, that, that can uh, end up receiving a, large, a sufficient amount of social consensus that then it gets accepted as everyone as the new normal. It, it seem, it's interesting to me that the conversation that we're having is basically about Watson's rights, where before Watson or any AI actually becomes an AI, which may just be a fictional thing anyway, right? We have no evidence that there's cognition or that there's experience that's going to happen. It seems to me that that whole sci-fi scenario is a distraction from the very real impact that intelligent agents can have right now. As, you know, Kevin would, would sh has shown us, you know, a, a, an algorithm following its instructions can crash the stock market and destroy wealth and lead to real problems. You know, before, so we're sitting here because we're so ethical, you know, worrying about whether this algorithm is going to feel it if we turn the fucking thing off um, when it's extracting value from all of us because it's programmed to do what giant uh, Fortune 500 companies can do. Yeah, but that's just the problem value. with capitalism. Come on. But that, but that in it's a way is showing how ca capitalism is scaling up. And so that is through a sense artificial intelligence. Sure. Yes, exactly. But that, but that. I'm not. It is. I understand that. Right. I had Philip K. Dick twice and now capitalism. This is like awesome. Keep going. It is. No, at, no, no, at no, IBM. no, 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 no. Because I do think the kind of issue you're talking about of how ex how surplus value is going to be extracted in the future and how it might just be extracted just by our, our, our mouse clicks as we're making choices on things on the internet, right? I mean, I think that's a serious issue, okay? But that's an issue uh, that, that you might say uh, is part of the, the problem of capitalism. I think in a sense, we still have to address the issue of whether these machines have agency and what we want, you know. Yeah, but, I mean, as, and that was part of what that announcement uh, that, that Hawking and those folks did. I mean, the development of this technology dovetails very conveniently with traditional corporate capitalism in a way that seems more than coincidental, more than a side effect, because it's investment that's going into the most promising work in this field, and that investment is looking for a certain kind of return that... Yeah, we will teach doctors how to heal patients, but we're also really what we're doing is helping doctors cope with uh, 
big industrial medical you know uh, medical sure, problems. Sure, no, no, but this is where we need sophisticated social and political theory for the future. That's that what we're here. That's us. Yeah, we are, yeah, 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 yeah. We, yeah, we yeah, so are the human intervention yeah, yeah, but I, I, right I, I, now. See, this I, is the moment. No, no, that but he I, created. I just I just want you to yeah. want to make sure that you're not saying pulling the to pull the plug on this. If we have to, sure. Uh, I'm not saying pull I, the plug or not. What I am saying is humans should intervene in the process. If well, you think course. intervention requires pulling out the plug, then we'll pull out the plug. So, I bet there's ways to intervene that So don't. there's a journey here. You yeah. sort of jumped there. There's a bunch of intermediate steps. Let me That's tell you what, what I'm saying. I, well, we jumped to artificial well, but thinking Pete, things. Peace. Yeah. Let, me, let me tell you yeah. what I worry about. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as you pointed out, Watson does some fairly sophisticated things. And we're using it for some fairly sophisticated tasks. And we are, you know, writing systems to help people deal with scale and complexity. First domain we looked at after the game was uh, oncology. Every day I come in thinking about that is an incredible responsibility. So I worry that people forget, back to your discussion earlier, that these things are computers, that they do what they do. And I, I worry that people ascribe notions of intelligence or cognition or, you know, free will, thank you for no, nobody bringing that up, um, to, to these computing systems which are designed to help people solve problems. I, I very much worry that people forget what they are. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the one other thread I want to I wanna explore before we then have everyone engage with us, and be, uh, start with, with Martine with this, is... Uh, there's a, there's a, it feels like a kind of a West Coast singularity trend, right? <laughs> Where people seem to be arguing, or actually are at me, um, <laughs> the idea that the, the history of our, very, of our cosmos, really, is information striving for complexity. So it uses matter to become atoms, to become molecules, to become cells, to become organisms, to become cultures, to develop a civilization, and now we have machines and silicon, and as silicon, and as our machines become more complex than us, they are essentially the next level of evolution, and then we are really only important in that journey insofar as we can keep the machines going. And when I argue, no, no, humans, humans matter, they say, oh, well, you only say that because you're a human, as if it's some kind of a hubris. Um, <laughs> That, it, that concerns me, but uh, as an ethicist, is this, is, this, is this a kind of a hubris or a, a solipsistic understanding of consciousness and, and what matters? So first of all, I, I live on the East Coast. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I can't speak for the people on yeah. the West Coast. Um, but... Um, I completely agree with what, with what you're alluding to. I think it is totally ubriistic. Um, from my own uh, ethical uh, well, I'm a very big believer in just sort of, I would say, like the school of awe and, and wonder. And so to me, um, just appreciating, you know, the plants outside, the, the beautiful design in here, each individual as, a, as an individual person, this is a, enough purpose for, for the whole universe, you know, right there. We can't help ourselves uh, creating uh, greater and greater degrees of order and complexity. Um, and we can't help the fact that so often that order and complexity crashes down on us. Um, the road to hell is, is paved with good intentions sort of thing. 
So um, I, I would be really skeptical myself about um, an ethical uh, paradigm based on some kind of uh, Nietzscheistic view that we're on this, you know, railroad uh, to Ayn Randism, you know. And um, instead, I would be much more comfortable with, a, uh, with an ethical worldview that was based on um, cherishing the, the beauty and the importance of all the life that's around us. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Hello, Team Human friends. This is Stephen. I just want to direct your attention to our Patreon campaign. It's located at patreon.com slash teamhuman. There you can find complete unedited video of this IBM Watson conference, including a very interesting question and answer session that was not included in today's podcast. Exclusive subscriber access to this content was generously made available thanks to Luke Robert Mason and Virtual Futures. Check out his podcast, Virtual Futures Podcast, on iTunes. And while you're there, give us a rating and share our podcast with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff, Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.